Hello and welcome back to Core Ideas, the podcast where we delve into anything related to lake sediments and paleolimnology. As always, we are your hosts. My name is Josh Thienpont and I'm here with my good friend, Adam Jesiorski. How's it going? Not too bad. What's up? Uh, not too much. Uh, we're in the depths of winter and cold snaps here in lovely southern Ontario. Yeah, it, it's been a while since we recorded one of these things. Yeah. Even though we've been putting them out slow, like the uh, from when we're recording this, one was uploaded not too long ago, and there'll be another one in in the intervening time. But yeah, it's it's. I was listening as I was editing the last bit before I put it up, and we we were talking about you know going into the new term and being on campus, and that just got wiped away. (laughs) So we got to stop talking about the pandemic because by the time we get these things posted, everything has changed. I know. We'll be on, um, you know, the Omega wave. Yep. Yeah. Wave 12 or whatever it is. Anyway, happily, the podcast continues to roll on. We're quickly approaching year two celebration. I know. And I don't know what we're going to, what exactly we'll celebrate. Um, not being quite as active uh, in year two as we were in year one, but pretty excited to be starting a new arc. Um, and I guess we're already one episode into it, um, looking into what we're calling conceptual rabbit holes or ideas that are simple on the surface, but more complex to dig deep into them. And there's lots of them in paleoanalogy. And just, uh, as a recap for last time, we looked at what exactly is being reconstructed in paleoanalogical reconstruction or how it is a wiggly world out there. And... Mm-hmm. Not sure. I really answered any questions regarding how well easy it is or not to match the paleolimnological and direct monitoring data. But uh, yeah, no, I thought it was, you know, spending some time talking about the advantages and disadvantages of linking these different types of records and how it can be complicated was a pretty interesting start to a new series of topics. Oh, agreed. I think it was a good place to start, and uh, lots of places we could jump off from there. I don't know that there's a natural progression from that to the things we we're considering, uh, but lots of different topics in this conceptual rabbit hole, big picture sort of arc. Yeah, I think it's really it's a grab bag of ideas to contrast with the you know the very detailed views of individual paleo indicators whereas now we're talking more of a 40,000 foot view and looking at different things um and where to go next among the things that we we talked about uh, and we will get to it is thinking about other I don't mean just in this episode I mean there's a, a couple of ideas that are related to this and and it kind of goes uh, along with the idea of the monitoring versus paleo data but is to think about other types of records uh whether they be monitoring like uh we talked about last time or whether they be other examples of archival types of data so i think that uh is the 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 thing we will do this time we're going to expand our horizons and completely leave the lakes behind we're not even going to talk about lakes we're not going to talk about wetlands we're going to talk about something totally different yes that's right dear listeners Despite being a paleolimnology podcast. The paleolimnology podcast. 
Is it? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. The paleo limnology. <laughs> there podcast. are still no others. Two years down. down there the are. Yeah. We, we, well, we, we, we own this here. niche. We saturated the market uh, <laughs> at like 25 listens a week. <laughs> anyway, we're going to go off road and explore other examples of archives that are used to reconstruct past environments that aren't lakes. And there are lots of them. Yeah. And um, basically lakes are of inter- broad interest because there are lots of them <clears throat> and they're all over the globe. And, um, but really what it comes down to, there are a natural archive that the sediments are preserved from disturbance, but really any sort of natural deposit that records a historical sequence of events can be interpreted, you know, with the appropriate knowledge. Yeah. At some point in the past, I don't remember which episode in the 40, this is 40. Yeah. This wow, is number 40. 40. Uh, crazy. Uh, in, in that record of episodes, <laughs> we talked about Steno's principle or the principle of superposition. So those are like the they're not laws of geology. That would have been in the, the sense, history series. Was it? Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And uh, so, so as long as there is some sort of depositional environment and, and it's not even that required to be, you know, horizontally deposited, like we assume in, in geology in, in superposition. But if you take that away, uh, as long that gets the idea across that as long as there is some depositional nature to the record and basically as long as you have a good understanding of where in the record the old stuff is relative to the young stuff and that doesn't change over time or it changes in a way that you can understand and use so it folds or whatever uh that could potentially be a useful archive and it's amazing as you start to go through the list of things that people have done to reconstruct the environment and and see some of the fairly at the at at the outset when they first per, came up with this idea probably crazy ideas as to what you can look at yeah and you know there are lots of these sorts of archives that, that are out there and you know lots of them have been studied and probably lots of them are still remain to be discovered but you know this covers Inorganic things like ice cores and speleotherms and ice wedges. Uh, some of them are looking at growth patterns of individual organisms. And so that's where you get into things like dendrochronology and tree ring analyses and sclerochronology. And uh, then there's also the whole category of natural deposits create, created by animals. So not just lake sediments, but in principle the same general sort of idea but talking about things like gueno mounds middens nesting sites and a variety of natural deposits yeah and it probably seemed a little bit crazy to go and take a core of lake mud at some point too so it just is just as the first person to go and take a a, a big slice out of a pack rat midden and look at all the stuff that they'd they'd picked up probably got a, a few strange looks and then lo and behold these are amazing archives as they all are i think this level so is it, craziness you know, though there's a little bit yeah okay that's fair a, a, a sediment core from um you know some mud from the bottom of a lake versus you Being know digging deep into in back, a several back story <laughs> <laughs> 
pile of bat poop that is hundreds of thousands yeah. of years old looking for treasure. Um, Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Uh, point taken. But to each their own. Um, but to each their own. And in uh, as we'll talk about in in many locations, that is the only option. So if you can find this natural deposit and you can interpret it, then that can tell you something about the environment. And in terms of like the wide variety of natural archives that are out there in the world, um, one key element to the hunt for many of these archives is because in many locations, particularly like arid locations, um, there just aren't very many lakes or wetlands available archiving the local environment. And so it becomes like a bit of a quest to find alternate means to find long-term environmental change on the landscape. Yeah, we take this for granted for sure. It was something that comes up all the time in classes when you're teaching students in Southern Ontario, where I'm talking about, probably Canada in in general, uh, Northeastern United States, whatever. Um, Take for granted that there is standing water just everywhere. Yeah. And uh, that is not the case in the vast majority of the planet. It's going to be dry. It's going to be stream dominated. So it's just not uh, standing water, uh, depositional and basins. Uh, and in those areas, you still need to understand what, what's been going on over long time scales, uh, in order to understand even modern changes. So the need to identify these, these indicators and these archives persists and, uh, and has to get creative. And on top of that, a key element of this whole kind of topic is that not every archive will record the same environmental changes. Um, and this is because in many ways, unlike lakes, which are a depositional basin for a huge suite of indicators. So, you know, we've gone through this in like previous arcs, but you have an autochthonous stuff. Uh, so stuff generated within the lake, stuff from around the lake, multiple uh, trophic levels, leaving a record in the sediments. A lot of the other archives that we referred to earlier and we'll be talking about in some more detail in the next few minutes um, are often, or it's not that they are only indicators of one things, but they're only really used, I guess, to indicate one or two things just in terms of the level of understanding and exactly what has been recorded in that particular archive can be quite specific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. They, they do tend to be a little bit more specific. And that may be that the method just hasn't been pushed any further to develop them as indicators of X or Y, uh, because they were identified to reconstruct uh, a, a condition related to one thing and, and that worked out. That satisfied the, the requirement uh, in order to do that. And so it wasn't pushed any further and, 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 or some of them are biological. And so, you know, you have the, the constraints of, of the biology of the organism. You're not going to be able to, you know, reconstruct something from a tree ring that has no linkage to the biology of, of a tree growing in, in a given location. So they can be constrained by the nature of the archive, not just being this bowl that's collecting everything everything that preserves but everything from in and out of the lake uh, into one area yeah and then um and many of the examples that or 
of these kind of like, I guess, so even the way that we refer to them doesn't totally make sense because we talk about it often as like unconventional paleolimnology, but there's no actual limnology in it. It's like environmental no. archives. Um, yeah. But basically using paleolimnological techniques for things other than lake sediments, I guess would be one way to kind of wrap your brain around it. But they broadly often fall into the, like the discipline of paleoclimatic archives. And this often makes a lot of sense because there's a broad interest in reconstructing climate. And, um, you know, it's like we have the general crisis affecting the globe over the past few decades, prompting scientists and researchers um, to go to ever increasing amounts of effort to find indicators from more and more regions of varying specificity. Um, uh, when they're first, you know, might, you know, as we alluded to earlier, maybe there's no lakes in the area that they're trying to get a good read on. Um, and maybe their second or third choices, whatever they might be, may not also be, may not be present either. Um, and so then it becomes a goal, okay, but what is being recorded through time in this particular region? Yeah, I find it fascinating that in almost every location, there is something that is archiving a record of climate in particular. Uh, maybe some of the other things we've talked about throughout all of these podcast episodes less so but from a climate perspective that you know you can it seems going through this list and thinking about them that there's there's generally something nearby and that includes going into the marine environment which we which we never really talk about uh because this is a lakes lake show um the yeah so if show. there's what's the. Uh, the the lake show right of course sorry it's twice now uh yeah, so if there's if there's no lakes and maybe there's no trees or the trees uh, are not recording that because trees can be complicated and and what is it that's controlling their growth may not be temperature it may be more precipitation it may be more local factors what else can can be found and then when that does uh, when you the second part is when you do find the archive of something that's recording a history that's building up uh what is it that you're actually going to look at when when you're analyzing it is it going to be fossil evidence like diatoms or cladocerans or something like that is it going to be isotope evidence like you would with uh the, the stable isotopes we talked about a couple episodes ago and then also that are important for ice cores and tree rings the kind of things we used as examples um so that that's the second part is to to pull that uh uh, I guess, indicator out of the archive. Yeah. And so, you know, and these isotopes are being recorded by things like the cellulose and tree rings, uh, the calcium carbonate and spilotherms, uh, and biological organisms like coral reefs or uh, mollusks that are being preserved. And they can be used in a similar manner because they're recording um, the oxygen isotopes present at the time of their formation. And then when they pile up, um, or um, uh, grow, um, you're getting that record through time. <clears throat> and if those remains um, are left undisturbed, then they're an archive that can be um, mined meta metaphorically. Um, but it is also very important to keep in mind the environmental context of the specific archive because the conditions under which a coral grows and the behavior of the isopes within it can, will be quite different in you know, potentially 
tropical marine environment versus on top of a uh, glacial ice sheet. Oh, absolutely. For sure. And, uh, and there's so many things that you can use these isotopic remains, uh, isotopic, uh, indicators in from organisms. And there is a linkage, uh, to when you were talking about corals and mollusks and, and like animals, um, to sort of an archeology span perspective as well, a paleontology perspective, because there's there's been work on like looking at mammoth tusks and and it's amazing i guess to sum it up that so many organisms have uh have growth rings of some sort where they're recording a, a temporal component in some sort of structure that they have you know uh, fish autoliths which we, we talk about from a yeah from the from a lake perspective we talk about those um but mammoth tusks and and you know it's amazing you can continue to find all of these different things and i think that links into uh, when you're talking about whole or individual organisms or or parts of organisms links into the potential to use uh, archives that are created by biological organisms but are not made up of the animals themselves yeah and so there are a number of organisms that you know leave material behind um, and those materials can be used for paleoclimate reconstructions too. Um, as an indirect record, um, one of the most studied, um, types of these records would be pack rat mittens. Um, and so this is basically for those not familiar, uh, pack rats are basically a genus of rodent. They're, they actually mice, even though they're called pack rats. I'm not sure where I'm not. I don't or really how, know that much about, that uh, about the rodent breakdown. I think they're closer to us, like the smaller rats uh, of North America, than than like field mice, kind of like native mice. Uh, but don't quote me on that. That's like a line from <laughs> Wikipedia way back. Yeah, no, we're we're out of our lane a little bit here. But basically, the we don't really care too much about the animals. They're quite themselves. cute little things. Uh, well, I don't know. I think, oh, you don't care. I think they're, they're sweet little uh, things. <laughs> um, but anyway, but the point being that they, um, you know, they have nests uh, and the refuse and the waste from the animals piles up over time. And that uh, poop and food remains and whatever else they accumulate in their middens, uh, leaves an archive that piles up over years and can be um, examined in detail. But the whole, the deeper you get, the older you get, kind of mentality. Yeah, they're, I think they're, they're like fascinating and hilarious all at the same time. Like apparently they have a, a predilection for shiny things. So if you go now up and find a modern midden, it'll just be full of buttons and seeds that the the little thing liked and they like they're like collectors someone i don't know if, was it small was it john who said they're like smog from uh the hobbit like they just sit on their little treasure <laughs> troves of of things that they've collected uh without the like dragon okay. <laughs> activities um and yeah so they they collect things and now they collect buttons and you know little bits of you know, go fluff go and tinsel and things like that. Get like ring pull tabs. Right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, we're in the 70s you definitely now. would. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then you go further back, they, they still like to collect stuff, but there weren't people around. So they collected seeds and uh, twigs and, you know, the, the, the plant pieces and stuff like that. And, and so when they do that and bring them into these mounds, which can be enormous, like as big as a grown adults can climb into these things or crawl into them because they're often like in underhangs of, of arid regions in particular where they're really popularly used in the Southwestern United States and Arizona and those kind of areas. Um, they can be enormous uh, archives and they produce a really viscous urine, apparently. Uh, that's uh, it just keeps quite getting better, this story. Yeah, right. So they pee all over the mitten, right? And that becomes the glue that holds it all together and preserves all of these things. So you get incredibly well preserved uh, plant remains that can be used to track the biogeography of plants that were found in areas going back. There are, there are pack rat mittens that go past like, deep into the quaternary, like past the last glacial, because there's no glaciation in these areas either, right? So there's nothing to wipe them away like our lakes. Uh, and and so we have these long-term climate trends uh, inferred indirectly, often from like this plant species is no longer found in this area, not found here now. We know it lives, it's in an area of colder climate. Uh, so this area was likely colder when the the silly little rodent uh move these seeds here and then peed all over them yeah. um just as an aside i just like the general idea that the secret ingredient or the magic ingredient to pack rat middens is very viscous urine but um <laughs> uh but yeah and and because in, in these can be found in like desert areas um they're often the best, if not the only, paleoclimate record available for some regions. And which gives them a, a huge significance. Um, and the genus of pack rats is Neotoma, which may be a familiar word to many, uh, well, some of our listeners, because uh, that is the name of the the big paleoecological database. Which is, in, I think we, did we mention it in the pollen episode maybe? Possibly. Uh, if not, we if we didn't mention it by name, we mentioned it by existence because there are these databases of, of paleoecological data and it's named after pack rats. Yeah. And, uh, and then just going further into like the... Uh, I could talk about pack rats all day. <laughs> like we should have just made this a pack Well, it's not really episode. about pack rats. It's more about poop. <laughs> And it's just like the no, the, I think they're funny. You know, the uh, the juvenile person within me um, is just like you know, you know that pack rat poop size. So the individual pellets droppings can tell you something about climate just on their own. Mm -hmm. um, Amazing, just because the pellet size is proportional to the size of the rat that produced it, and. Which should make sense. Anyone who's looked at dogs knows that that's, that's just, reasonable. It makes right? sense. And, and in turn, the size of the animal is linked to temperature. With uh, warmer regions and warmer times, having smaller pack rats. Yep. That's the classic example of Bergman's rule. You know, uh, colder in colder regions, you get bigger animals. Like if you look at bears, polar bears are the biggest and they get smaller as you go into warmer areas and it works for 
within a or within a genus or within a species too. So the same rat uh, or same lineage of rat will uh, will change its body size to suit the temperature, to suit the climate. And fascinating. Its propellant size will also change. That's exactly it. Yep. And because it's desiccated and it's in a dry area, you know, that adds to the preservation. It it makes it so that these archives are the only option because some of the others don't exist. No trees, no lakes, but uh, it does help with the preservation of, of the pack rat mitten. It's magical, really. And on that note, everybody poops, everything poops. And that means that there are other piles of poop out there in the world that can be studied. Yep, that's right. <laughs> Just keep looking. Someone's like, hey, if, if the pack rat people can do it, so can we. That was the bat researchers. <laughs> but, but to be fair, you would have thought that they, it'd be the other way around. Because like some of the cave bat poop piles are awe-inspiring. Oh, the, and known since antiquity. You know, they're not, they're not new things. Uh, people have known about these, and they are massive. You know, some of the things you see on planet earth and those yeah. kind of documentary shows of large cave dwelling bat colonies are enormous and conducive to being preserved so if you're in a um a, you know bat colony in a cave for a long long time they're up on the cave ceiling pooping down into a giant pile below them that poop pile is not regularly disturbed. It's kept relatively dry. Um, and these are probably anoxic too. Just, oh, magical. And, you know, um, again, so here rather than deserts, we're really talking more about more tropical locations, which um, often, despite being wet, uh, don't have, don't typically have a lot of lakes to present as archives. So basically, um, you know, if you're interested in long-term ecological records, you're forced to look at other things. And so digging deep, deep, deep into ginormous piles of bat guano is a thing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and the harder to get to, probably the better archives they are. They'd be less disturbed. But that that's becomes a, a, a mountaineering or a, a spelunking, but, uh, you know, a really challenging kind of... Uh, uh, access and getting equipment in there yeah pooping sure <laughs> uh, patent pending on that term uh and that that should be on a t-shirt and um yeah so you know you you get a, a very different environmental cue and uh you, you i'm not sure that there are sort of the same paleoclimatic records that have been used uh, and correct me if i'm wrong i certainly don't know everything about bat guanoology and uh but being poop you're going to have obviously nitrogen so the nitrogen isotopes like we talked about from the the productivity perspective are are definitely going to be part of that signal um there's a lot of contaminants because bats feed at a different bat species feed at a variety of different uh, trophic levels so you would imagine the ones that are insectivores are going to well integrate different food integrate different nitrogen but also integrate different contaminants from the frugivores i don't know that uh carnivorous bats uh, roost in large caves i don't think like vampire bats are found in huge 
concentrations, but yeah, but you know, you're going to get that contaminant perspective. You're going to get the remains of the, the bits that they ate and, and, uh, defecated out. So the seeds of fruit that often pass through organisms, the remains of insects, obviously the chitinized bits that don't uh, digest well. So it's just going to be a literally a slurry of paleo goodness (laughs) in there. And although, you know, in terms of like many of the things that we've spoken about that I've had no direct experience in and go, oh, maybe one day I would have really liked to try that one time. The, uh, the bat cave things in the tropics, it's hot and humid beside a you know 10 story tall pile of poo it's just that that you had to uh, belay down into this cave wearing a respirator yeah and yeah now it's you know nothing but respect for the people that do it but i don't see the appeal yeah anyone who complains about wearing their mask all day (laughs) has not sampled a bat poo in a tropical cave wearing a full hazmat suit and respirator you'll be all right so the masks don't work i can't breathe with the mask yeah that's right yeah (laughs) so um yeah Uh, that that does seem like very hardcore paleo uh environmental research Um, so having seen some pictures but if that is too harsh for you, but you still have an acute interest in paleo poop analyses, you don't have to go quite so far afield or to quite so harsh an environment. Um, because in uh, temperate regions, there are simpler or easier archives out there if, if you're interested. Um, if you know poop piles are your thing, um, it is likely because you have a specific interest in what produced it. Um, and one of the things that produces um, serious poop piles not too far from where I'm sitting um, is uh, chimney swifts. would be an example of a, um, I guess, what would it be? An organism that leaves... Um, poop indicators spotted across the uh, landscape um, because there are a species of bird that actually flourished um, in many regions where humans built, I guess, not necessarily buildings, but I guess structures. Structures, structures that were roosting sites for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so you have these basically abandoned chimneys in older buildings where you've got a, a colony of them roosting for an extended period of time. And um, one of those archives is, you know, was fairly well documented and publicized just at Queen's University in Kingston, I guess about 10 years ago now. Is when the chimney something like that? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, something in that range. Yeah, they're an interesting little bird. When you when you read up a little on them, they're I, I don't know I don't know if they're nocturnal or just like crepuscular or whatever. But they they hole up in places for most of the day, and uh, and historically they weren't that common in in southern 
whatever, southeastern Ontario, the northeastern United States, but they flourished when people started building chimneys because that was a nice uh, analog to a like tree cavity that they would historically have found themselves in. Except bigger. And except bigger and more numerous and uh, everywhere. And uh, they just had this huge explosion in their populations. And then we stopped, you know, using them so commonly. Uh, chimneys, they're still on houses, but they're not the big ones that heated factories and buildings like uh, industrial locations. Uh, kind of stopped quite quickly when we moved to centralized electricity. And um, some of those obviously got knocked down and, and the huge poop piles probably with them. But the the few that remained are quite interesting archives of the the lives of, of one particular species that's now, I don't know if it's fully uh, at threatened or w- what its status is, but it's it's in decline. Uh, and you get the work at Queens on this one chimney from Fleming Hall? Is, it, is that where your office is supposed to be? Uh, I've... I've only been there twice, yeah. but yes. <laughs> cool. Uh, was one of those kind of cool examples where it had been covered up so that it didn't get washed away or whatever, and then reopened again. And then uh, some of the the researchers in, in the small uh, lab group and, and colleagues elsewhere thought, hey, this is a cool way to look at a bunch of different stuff. Yeah. So, so depending on what your interest is... Um, between the tropics and temperate regions, um, marine environments, trees, there's natural archives all over the place and um, our natural deposits that can be used as archives all over the place. Um, and, you know, you're not limited to studying lakes and, you know, for many of these sort of environmental questions I've been talking out talking about over the course of the last 40 ish episodes, it's just like, it's just like one aspect, I guess, of environmental reconstructions. Yep. I wonder if there's a pack rat midden podcast. I have to Google it. <laughs> watch there be, watch there be in it. Um, uh, be like, have a massive kind of listener base. <laughs> Let me draw the ire of uh, the 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 pack rat midden fans by by not mocking them, but just in our general tone of like the lack of, I guess. Are you kidding? I would have an archive of of back episodes to work through. (laughs) So, having you know being tangentially connected to some of these sort of analyses in our time at Queens. Have you had any personal experiences with more, dry, I guess, dryish archives? One way to talk about it. I don't think so. I guess, we talked about being tree ringer adjacent in uh, in the isotope lecture, so that that would be, I think, it. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, and we talked a little bit about ice wedges, and you know, know about that, but that's not personal stuff. So no, not really. Pretty much a lake person. Um, yeah, uh, they're very interesting for sure. But I guess you know when you when you get specialized, and and I I, I would wonder how much c- uh, crossover there is from people who work on s- several different things. I would imagine that you get more and more specialized uh, when you get into some of these. 
Yeah. Because I guess you become an expert, you know, you're forced to become an, your expertise is, um, you know, like indicator specific, I guess, you know, like, it's like mm-hmm. we talked, we talked before, you know, there's not a whole lot of, what are they called? Polymaths out there that are familiar with every indicator. It's usually like, a, you know, you have got the time um, to really focus on just a small handful. Yeah. And so in this. Yeah. Sh- the, the glaciologist gets everything they need from the ice core. You know, it's really centered around using that for something specific. And, and that makes sense for the same with someone who works on corals or. So, yeah, and I, I am in the same boat. I have no personal experience with any of the feces theses, but I have been <laughs> feces adjacent at many points in my life. That's right. Did you share an office with Angela when he was uh, helping take those samples from the chimney in uh, in Fleming Hall? Um, so, you know, what's interesting, though, is I'm pretty sure that because he went on to do um, lake analyses for his actual theses. Yeah. So mm-hmm. he, collect, he oh, I think collected he was just there the, for the day. Yeah. The, uh, the chimney swift course, but I don't think he analyzed them. No, no, no. I think he would just come in. Hopefully he went straight home to the shower, uh, not not came into this, to the office oh, yeah. in his scrubs or whatever yeah. he was wearing. Oh, he came in as a volunteer and uh, got put to work in the in the chimneys in several stories of dried poop and thought, this is for me. So, sounds like a Dickens novel, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so there you go. I guess we are really just talking... Uh, pretty generally no personal experience yeah. but um part for the course in really. another world if, if you if you went and studied somewhere else yeah and i guess one other thing that just kind of as we were preparing the notes for this episode is would you slot pete into this group pete analyses because it's like dry, it's very specific to the immediate location in many ways. Yes, um, true. The you know, it's closer to solid versus lake sediment. Yeah. So you're dealing. Yeah, I don't know. I've, I don't know. I, I think it's maybe somewhere in between. You know, you're using lakes. You're using coring techniques pretty similar to what you would use in a lake not that you don't core a tree or ice or a coral but they're very different uh whereas you would use like a a russian core which you could use on lakes some of the indicators are lake indicators or or aquatic indicators or semi-aquatic diatoms protozoans testate amoeba but it is you're right it is quite different it is quite local yeah so i don't know i don't know it's good to think yeah, about. Yeah, throw it out there. Like, I mean, I guess everything is a spectrum uh, in terms of, I guess they're all individual kind of archives, but there's like a range and some are more similar. Obviously, the poop piles are quite similar to each other. But then as you go to the, from the more dryish to the wettish kind of environments, that it's just a gradual gradation, really. Yeah, and some of them I know very little about. Like uh, we talked, we just hinted at speleotherms, so like cave stalactites and stalagmites. I don't know anything about the methodology behind those. I mean, I, I basically know that they look at iso- carbon isotopes, oxygen isotopes, because they're carbon, you know, because of what they're made out of. But uh, 
yeah, I don't know anything about how you would take one of those things. Do they cut the whole thing off and section it? No idea. Something to look up for another day. Yeah. Absolutely no idea. That's well outside of my lane. But just, I know they exist. I've seen the words several times. I've seen them in lists of things and textbooks, but that'd be the extent <laughs> of my uh, direct connection. Have you been in caves with speleotherms, with uh, stalagmites? I don't know. I'm like trying to think. I don't think I've ever been in a real cave, like in a cave system type. Mm-hmm. I've, I've never been once in on like vacation. No, <laughs> no, no, no. There was there were stairs. <laughs> <laughs> this cave in Bermuda that I have in my mind, but yeah, they are pretty cool. And and again, in in those kind of places, uh, cool. Cool a solution to a problem. Yeah, I guess on, on, I've got some like low level claustrophobia to the point that I just don't find I, oh, yeah. even in the touristy level caves. I just have no interest in actually visiting. Yeah, they're pretty yeah. cool, but I can see how if you if you didn't like that, that would that would be maybe take some of the joy yeah. out of it. Um, uh, and then the, the last thing that when we were thinking about this, we were. Uh, considering is the value that some of these archives have. And and I hinted at a little bit when I said that uh, people have known about bat guano for, and, and piles of bat guano since antiquity, because it's not very often that we think of lake mud as being valuable uh, or being particularly rare or being all that much useful for anything else. But that's not the case with like, in particular, guano. Um, yeah, because um, it has, uh, I guess, industrial is not necessarily the the right word, but maybe maybe. Uh, but as broad use as fertilizer. Um, my imagining things here is it not is it also not a key element of like gunpowder at one point. Uh, guano that sounds mines. familiar. I don't know. Yeah, it sounds we familiar. We didn't talk about this when we put it in the but it's just like coming to me again. And for some reason, I remember in terms of like, you know, like conquistadors and muskets and like the back bueno caves having a large strategic value for as a gunpowder resource in some, some way or shape. Um, but anyway, but anyway, because just the concentration of nitrogen and phosphorus in, in these localized deposits, um, have led to them being mined and compared to lake sediments, they are much more accessible. Like even, even, even the remote bat cave piles, um, you know, the bats have to be able to get in there the bats are of a certain size. So in many of them, they're much more accessible. So that means in many ways they're much more vulnerable than lake archives often are. Like, yes, you hear stories like the, you know, the Arctic ponds drying in the, um, in, um, which, which Cape is it? Cape Herschel that the, the pond, the, the pond, the Arctic ponds have dried over the last couple of decades on. Um, so yes, and lake and the glacial, uh, glaciation wiping lake records away, but, uh, on a more localized level, um, where the value is seen, um, a lot of these environmental archives can be, uh, wiped out with a purpose. Yeah. And trees would, would fit into that in in some way too obviously there are more trees but older trees become really important parts of a a chronology because they extend it back and uh and but also they have the greatest amount of of 
potential for timber or, or whatever is going to be used for it. Uh, and so you get that, that same analogous sort of relationship with, with the value of preserving some of these archives. Yeah. So yeah, no, it's an interesting topic overall and, and for many aspects in terms of what they are, where they are and how many of them remain and how they vary across the globe. Um, and the potential for poop, which is always <laughs> Some, very high. <laughs> <laughs> and I will always dive into those headfirst. That's right. All right, then. So I think uh, that's a good place to end our, um, you know, episode looking at the next best thing since sliced sediment. And, uh, and once again, thank you for listening to Core Ideas the podcast dedicated to all things paleolimnology. If you'd like to reach out to us with a question or comment, uh, just send us an email to coreideaspodcast at gmail.com. Or contact us through Twitter at coreideaspaleo, and there's only one A in paleo. All of our past episodes and some of the corresponding show notes would normally be found on our website at coreideas.ajazirski.ca, but we are currently experiencing some technical difficulties, so you may want to check back later uh did you notice did you notice <laughs> dear listener good old migrations going awry alas we'll fix yeah, it soon that's the world yeah and maybe maybe it'll be ready by the time this comes out and you'll be like oh looks fine and if you're so inclined you can give us a rating or subscribe on apple Podcasts, google play soundcloud spotify or wherever you get your podcasts those five star ratings make us feel really great but to be honest we don't care all that much because we just do this for fun and that's it for now uh, so join us again next time as we continue to explore paleolimnology in the knowledge economy era, sticking to our ethos of pure knowledge without the economy, unless it's being mindful of it.